The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we're going to make it worth your while because tonight we have a very special interview. Genevieve, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm doing excited great. about I'm, this. I'm extremely excited. I am extremely excited because tonight we have a very special guest. And Genevieve, if you will do us the honors, please. Here's a little intro. So Story Musgrave was born in 1935 on a dairy farm in Massachusetts. He was exploring forests alone at three and by five was building his own rafts and floating them on the rivers. He rode combines at five, drove trucks and tractors by the age of 10 and when alone in remote fields was already repairing those trucks by the age of 13. Story never finished high school, or never finished school, should I say, and entered the U.S. Marines in 1953, where he was an aircraft electrician and an engine mechanic, completing duties in Korea, Japan, and Hawaii. He started flying with the Marines and had, over the next 55 years, he'd accumulated 18,000 hours in over 160 aircrafts. He's a parachutist with over 800 free falls and has seven graduate degrees in mathematics and statistics, computer programming, chemistry, medicine, physiology and biophysics, literature and psychology. He has been awarded 20 honorary doctorates. He was also um, a part-time trauma surgeon during his 30-year astronaut career. So during these 30 years, he flew on six space flights, being only the second astronaut to achieve this record. He performed the first shuttle spacewalk on Challenger's first flight, was a pilot on an astronomy mission, conducted two classified DOD missions, was the lead spacewalker on a Hubble telescope repair mission, and on his last flight, he operated an electronic chip manufacturing satellite on Columbia. Today, he operates a palm farm in Orlando, Florida, a production company in Sydney, and a sculpture company in Burbank. He's also a landscape architect, a concept artist with Walt Disney Imagineering, an innovator with Applied Minds, Inc., and a professor of design at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena here in California. Story also performs multimedia presentations on topics such as vision, leadership, motivation, safety, quality and innovation, creativity, design, simplicity, beauty and ecology. He has seven lovely children, ranging from age 48 to two years old, three adorable grandchildren, and of course, his beautiful wife, Amanda. Wow. Back to you, Frank. And that was oh just a summary. <laughs> it, he makes me feel like I haven't done anything in my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and my name's Genevieve. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now, due to a, a little glitch in the Matrix, and by Matrix, I mean our computer over here, uh, we lost the first few minutes of our interview, but luckily... Uh, pretty much all of it was recorded. And now we present to you for your listening pleasure, none other than astronaut, legend, really all-around American hero, Dr. Story Musgrave. Here we go. <laughs> gloves and helmets and all the rest of that, but they yeah. didn't change the shuttle itself. So we have this very cumbersome suit, but it gave us the same chair to sit in. They never changed the chair. And so the suit doesn't fit in the chair. Mm-hmm. And the suit actually doesn't even fit in the shuttle. <laughs> And so you're trying to accommodate this suit and the gloves, and you can't do the computer with the gloves on, yeah. but you have to do the computer. But, you know, so they say you have to wear the gloves for pressure, for loss of pressure protection, yeah. but we can't do the computer. So they never resolve the problem. And so we cheat. We take the gloves off. But So I'm saying that it's not just uh, this, this logistical encumbrances like that. They, they get kind of miserable. Mm-hmm. The oxygen bottles, your escape bottles, they don't fit in the chair either. They're hanging down behind you and they're pulling on straps. It's like gorilla sitting on your chest. 
but anyway, so the logistical things are rough. Mm-hmm. So it's um, a little different than a, than a really beautiful ride. And for the um, people who are just joining us, um, we're interviewing um, none other than Dr. Uh, Story Musgrave, uh, a veteran of the space program, six space uh, missions, um, bonafide uh, uh, U.S. hero, to say the, the least. Um, now, let me ask you something, uh, Dr. Musgrave. We have the, uh, the Endeavor here at the L.A. Uh, Science Center, and yes, we I've went there. Yeah, and it's you know it's it was really fascinating for me to see the space shuttle up close. However, I'm I I I've seen videos from the inside, and it looks like you guys are in quite you know tight quarters. Um, it is tight. How how do you guys survive you know x amount of days up there in in these conditions? It's uh, Frank is partly the zero g, the freedom of zero g. And it's not zero G, it's the free fall condition, but the ability to live on a ceiling as well as the floor mm-hmm. and the lightness. So you feel very light. Mm-hmm. And it is that lightness which does not confine you to the floor. And it's the ability to go over the top of things that are in your way. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is if you can just get your nose on the window, you're seeing a thousand miles or more. Mm-hmm. And so the expansiveness of the window, okay, there's a closet behind you. But what you see ahead of you is a thousand or two thousand miles. That that's so expansive. So the the lightness of zero G and the expansiveness of the view out the window really tends to lighten the closet effect that you're in. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. And um so really people I know a cabin fever is Genevieve, but you don't get cabin fever. You don't get the claustrophobia. Mm-hmm. I mean you you're in the most open space in a way, I guess. More open than any human's been in, so it is. Yes, it is. And do you, do you feel that there's anything specific, um, you know, that you believe that humans don't and cannot realize until they've been out there, you know, in space? Yeah, it's as as well as we can express it, and the multimedia we can produce, you know. It's a, it's like a great ballet or a great football game or a rocket launch. Mm-hmm. Everyone that's seen a that's seen, that's witnessed a rocket launch for real, they will tell you flat out that television cannot capture that. Mm-hmm. So it's the occasion, it's the the occasion and the reality and the real sound and the real everything. There is no way that the media can capture what watching a rocket launch is, and everyone that sees that, like for the first time, especially, they'll say, "Wow." They'll say, wow, you just have to do it. So, mm-hmm. um, like that. And I don't know if you if you read the this story that came out in February that the uh, widow widow of uh, Neil Armstrong recently discovered a, a treasure trove of gear that uh, he used during the Apollo 11 missions to to the moon and uh, now the yeah. artifacts are in exhibition at the Smithsonian. Um, did yeah. did you keep any mementos from your um, uh, space flights? I know, sir. I, I'm not. That belongs to the government. Oh, really? So hopefully. <laughs> well, so there's a there's a big argument going on, and they've been through the legal arguments and mm-hmm. all the rest of that. It depends. Now there are some hmm. very clear things, like your clothes. Okay. Like the t-shirts. Mm-hmm. That is known ahead of time, and it's known afterward. And they put your name on the shirt, and the government hands you the shirt when you're done. With other people, you know, it's your right. shirt. Mm-hmm. And so that's perfectly clear. It's your shirt. It's your clothes, and uh, not your coveralls. Mm-hmm. Okay? But that's your shirt that you ordered ahead of time. They hand you the shirt, and that's a done deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you start taking pieces, mm-hmm. and so this is a little bit, um, it's a little bit philosophy. It's a little bit one's own ethic. Right. I do believe that if you take pieces off a spaceship, so you'll have mementos later on, that that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay, I get you. And so I think it's very clear you should not be doing that. I see. Uh, so no. I think you should go. You should be going through the channels. Of course. If you want to take something with you, you want to go through the channels and say, is this mine or is it yours? Mm-hmm. And except for very personal things, the rest of it belongs to the government. Yeah, correct. And so I'm a very simple-minded farm kid. I have a different kind of ethic than other people. Right. Mm-hmm. But that issue has arrived. It has, you know, gone to the highest levels of the Congress and even to uh, the administration. 
Wow. And so the administration, Obama, he, he declared that what these people had was theirs. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> no, so that, he answered that question. I I get you. Uh, now, I know that you're also going to be at the uh, Contact in the Desert Conference, uh, which is happening uh, yeah. in May, uh, May 29th through the 31st out here in, in Joshua Tree. Yeah. And um, yeah. obviously, Contact in the Desert, a lot of people are going there and, and they're, uh, you know, uh, UFO enthusiasts and and yeah. and are looking, you know, for, for answers. So you... Uh, mention, um, I, I was looking or listening to one of your, uh, previous interviews and, and you mentioned that in, in two space missions you saw, and, and there's footage of this, what, what you describe as a six to eight foot, uh, snake. Um, and there's also another interesting oh. video from the STS 80 yeah. where you see these lights that seemingly seem to form a, 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 a circle of sorts, a formation of sorts. Um, can you tell me a little bit about those experiences? <clears throat> well, the snake was not a snake. It was, so you have to be very careful to really, if you're going to do interpretations, to really listen to what people say and to listen to them interpret the video that they're taking. Mm -hmm. And so then you get some context. Mm -hmm. Snake-like means it had internal motion when it popped off from me. Mm. When it popped off of my vehicle or my satellite, mm -hmm. it had internal motions like a garden hose would. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Curled up a garden hose like, and you threw it out there in, in the zero G. Well, you know, it would uncoil and then it would wave. It would have internal motions within its structure and rapidly damp out until it was still. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I saw I on two different occasions, and I videoed them. Uh, so I asked the Kennedy Space Center, you know, later, did was the vehicle missing something that should not have been missing? No, everyone's happy, so okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so <clears throat> I can only think it was some kind of rubber seal. Mm -hmm. or some kind of attachment device on the satellites or something like that. I see. But as I'm going to explain and have a lot of fun doing it at the Joshua Tree, mm -hmm. I contact in the desert, my entire workshop will be on what I have seen and, uh, and what you look for, how you can become a very nuanced observer of things out there. Mm -hmm. and what they're going to look like and how you interpret them. So <clears throat> you can look at objects out there and you look at their trajectory that is where they're going. Mm -hmm. And you can tell <clears throat> you can tell it came from you mm -hmm. because until something else touches it, Newton's second law, until something touches it, It'll you look at the moving. trajectory has away from you and you know it came from you mm -hmm. and you know about how long ago. <clears throat> that it came from you. And so these snake-like structures, they had the internal motion, they came from me because they're moving directly away from me. Mm -hmm. But still, I never found out what they were. I can postulate, but, it, mm -hmm. you know. <clears throat> so I don't know, but there's a whole bunch of things you don't know. Right. Um, but to give you one fun example, mm -hmm. um, on my first flight, I did Challenger's first flight. Now, when they're manufacturing Challenger and building it up, sometimes objects fall behind behind panels, behind other um, <clears throat> structure, and they can't get to them. They cannot get to them. Mm -hmm. and, so, and they're stuck there forever till yeah. launch. But the vibrations of launch now, the vibrations of launch shake all that stuff loose. Mm -hmm. And when you abruptly shut the engines down, you propel them forward. But to make an example really nice for you, if you took a, a gallon milk carton, mm -hmm. and an empty milk carton, and you put a little washer inside the carton, mm -hmm. in space, you can watch it work its way out. Yeah. Because that thing will bounce on every wall, and finally it bounces mm -hmm. on a tiny pole, yeah. and out it comes. So, on Challenger's first light, when I opened the payload bay doors of the shuttle, it was, it was like a hardware store. Wow. There were nuts and there were bolts, and I'm talking not just, I'm talking wrenches, mm -hmm. and I'm talking tools. So when I open the door, it's a hardware store that's going out there. Wow. Okay. 
Now, when that stuff gets 30, 40, 50 feet away, when it gets 100 feet away, now it's doing very funny things. Mm -hmm. If it rotates, the light is going to be going on and off. If it's got a reflective surface Mm -hmm. and it's rotating in the sun, if it bounces into one of its other ones, and also you can have ice from leftover stuff from the engines, there's always a whole pile of either fuel or oxidizer because the mixture is not perfect. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you shut the engines down, it turns to ice in the vacuum. And so you have thousands of pieces of ice, and then you get all these tools and nuts and bolts and washers. Man, it is just a debris field out there. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. as the stuff drifts away from you, and you take a video or photograph of that, it is unbelievable what's in that photograph. Mm-hmm. It is just spectacular. Now, if somebody is looking at all this and they don't hear the story behind it and they don't know that it's 100 feet away, yeah. if they don't know the story and you look at that picture or video and you assume it's 100 miles away, mm-hmm. but that is a totally different interpretation. Yeah. So that's just a little bit <clears throat> about the phenomenon out there. That is really interesting. Um, and thank you for that for that example. I think it really uh, uh, helps uh, understand uh, that concept and, and yes and Frank that's only one that's only one scenario so when contacting the desert my, my workshop uh-huh. heck I'm going to do 20 or 25 different scenarios oh wow about what happens but also what could happen not just what has happened and my own interpretation of my own observations mm-hmm. but when something comes you know from out there I'm going to talk about how you see it and what it's going to look like I'm going to talk about the orbital the orbital dynamics. I'm going to talk about how you see other satellites. Because wow. I've had a massive exposure of releasing satellites and also rendezvousing and capturing them. So mm-hmm. you see, that's the whole story I'm going to give on my workshop. That is really fascinating. It, it really is. Um, we were um, also listening to one of your lectures uh, that you did in 2011, I believe it was at the MUFON conference. Um, and then you talk about... Yes, I had a wonderful time. Oh, yeah, it was... I, said, I had a wonderful time, uh, uh, the MUFON people and myself. We had a, just a great time. Uh, I think it was in Irvine. Yeah, it, correct. It was in Irvine. And um, uh, in, in it, you discussed um, that, you know, we... And and uh, collectively, as as a, a race, I believe you you were saying that we have to get our act species, together. Yeah. Uh, our species, yeah. Yeah. Before, uh, and you kept mentioning uh, the others before we. Um, I may be paraphrasing poorly, oh, but we you, know what we're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> so, what can you um, tell me a little bit about that? What are your thoughts? Uh, uh, it seems that that you don't believe that we're alone in the world or in the universe. I should say. Oh, there's trillions. There's trillions. If you look at the number of planets out there, it's absolutely, it's just massive beyond imagination, the planets. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the planets that are conducive to life arising or life being moved from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And if uh, if the species, uh, let, let me call it the advanced evolutionary string on that planet, if they get their act together. So maybe technologically on Earth here, we've been growing our technology for wherever you want to start, the Italian Renaissance, Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. whatever, two or three hundred years. But if you look at a planet that got to act together, and they've been around a billion years, well, the technology they could develop mm-hmm. would just be uh, super. And so I believe there are also millions, if not billions, of, of, of star travelers out there, too. You know, they're able, that are so advanced, they're able to do star travel. Mm-hmm. So do, that's that side of the coin. Do you believe that um, we have been visited by another <clears throat> race at some point in our in our history? Yeah, uh, another, yeah, you mean a living being yes. from, uh, out there. Well, I have to put that, I have to put that carefully. And the way I put that mm-hmm. is this. I'm totally honest and open about absolutely everything. I give people the best I got. I'm just saying, uh, Frank, that the evidence that that has come to me, mm-hmm. to my personal observations, mm-hmm. listening to other people, and have seen the evidence that has come my way, I cannot say that we've been visited here. I don't have the evidence mm-hmm. that we have. Yeah. <clears throat> On the other hand, and I've run into, I know loads of people have been abducted. Well, that's okay. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I don't argue with them, and I don't tell them they were not. Yeah. I don't say that because I wasn't there. Right. Yeah. I was not there. I'm not happy with the kind of details, the detail observations they give me mm-hmm. about the experience. But, of course, they may say we were brainwashed, so you couldn't pass on the information. Mm-hmm. But anyway, in regards to all of that, I don't argue with people because I'm only, you know, I'm only a sample of one. I'm one person. And I interpret the data that I have. I make my own observations. I'm incredibly careful Mm -hmm. to try to make best observations I can. I listen to other people. I listen to the other data. But then just as the introduction to the program said, you know, your little introduction, the tape you play for this program, Mm -hmm. it says, you know, people got to form their own opinion. That's what you said in the introduction, you know. They got to assess all the data coming to them, and then they form their own opinion about things. Mm-hmm. And that's what you got to do. And so with all the data, I'm mean, an evidence-based person that's come to me. I do not have the evidence that we've been visited. Okay. And but that... I'm sure open to it. And you've heard my quotes. I say, I pray to them. Yeah. Come get me, man. If, if you're going to listen, mm-hmm. if you're going to listen to me, and I'm just 200 miles closer to you than the rest <laughs> of the world. But, you yeah. know, I just, you have to accept them or they're not going to come. Right. Yeah. So that, first of all, is acceptance. If you absolutely reject them mm-hmm. in a stupid kind of, you know, a way that's just not open to the world out there, and you mm-hmm. say we are the only, so humans have made that mistake for four or five hundred years. Yeah. We are the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not true. Yeah. But if you reject everyone out there like we're the only intelligent people in this universe, they're not coming here. They're not going to come to a place that's rejected them without, without you know, even trying to get to know them. And so I make myself open. I mean, say, you know, people say, well, how could you possibly? Well, it's just prayer, man. Do you pray? Yes, I pray. Well, so do I. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's just a mental state. It's a mental state of acceptance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's almost, state. sorry, <laughs> I was going to say, it's essentially yes. um, a similar paradigm shift that, people need to go through that they did around the time of Copernicus. And uh, unless that shift happens, um, people won't be ready in the same way that others won't be ready to come over. (laughs) Exactly. Extremely well put. I know. So it's a... it is what what uh, Frank? Oh no! I was just going to say, if is this how you've always uh, felt, or was this uh, shaped by your uh, experiences going to space? No, as a three-year-old, I was this way. Wow, that's impressive. That that no, it definitely <laughs> down the forest. Well, a three-year-old in the forest alone at night, yeah, is a further out experience than any space flight experience. Yeah, but I had the faith, you see. Mm-hmm. I had the faith. I had the faith in what was around me. I had the faith in the spirits. For a three-year-old in the forest, you got spirits. Wow. Mm-hmm. But see, I knew I was one of those spirits. So, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Oh, it's wow. an a- acceptance of the things around you. Yeah. Oh. Absolutely. And also, it, it gets similar to when one culture meets another, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at uh, the way we didn't do it well historically, uh, it's the way one culture accepts another culture. Mm-hmm. True. You know, and so when you're entering another person's culture, you're the guest and you have to be incredibly careful. Yeah. But when you do that, you're the guest, you know, so it's acceptance. That is. But, but you need to be just as accepting as the, as the host. You know, the host needs to be just yes. as accepting. But it's also, and you put it exactly right, it's a, a Copernican paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And that is the species, even before contact is made and even before yeah. there is strong evidence it is to our own furtherment that they be accepted yeah as opposed to all those anthropocentric errors we made in the past yeah and dr musgrave i i know we're we're running out of time and you're calling from the from the east coast and we want to we want to thank you for that well, we but- got more and you you may have something else going on but i'm I'm still comfortable with what we're doing. Okay, great. No, 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 no. Then if if yeah. you if you're so kind you, you enough to give us, us know. You yeah, let yeah, us please, know. we we yeah. we yeah, were happy to come with you. Yeah. Okay, okay. great. <laughs> uh, because I was gonna I was going to um to ask uh, one of the powerful things that you said in that MUFON lecture is you were talking about the power of life. Um, Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that was very, very profound. I was, I was quite taken aback by, by how you explained it. 
Well, it's just uh, life as we know, of course, is the way carbon hooks to itself. Mm-hmm. And so that's what allows for life. Mm-hmm. If you look at the atomic table and the way the, the carbon hooks up to other molecules, but in particular to itself, that allows for the making of big molecules necessary for life. The mm-hmm. big molecules, they also come from supernova events and things like it. Life is unbelievably powerful. There's four million species, and we, we think we only got half of them. So, you know, we think we discover them all the time. But if you look at, um, especially microbiology, if you look at bugs, you look at bacteria and all that stuff, and uh, and viruses are not even alive. You know, you look, you think yeah. about they're alive because you get infected by them. They're not alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not even a cell. And so they're pieces of protein, in there, but you look at the way life responds to the pieces of protein. and But... The totality then of that carbon to carbon bond on our own earth with probably, um, you know, six, seven million species and the diversity and the way it is so powerful to be able to live in steam vents in the ocean, so powerful to live 30,000 feet down or 30,000 feet up. You know, so life is incredibly powerful and if it can, it will arise and it will find a way, find a way to survive. That tells you, when it's that powerful, it tells you that doggone it, it can inhabit uh, most of the planets out there. Wow. And it, it will it will arise from the soup, or it will be able to trans, be transferred on meteorites. You know, we're not sure how life began here even. Then. They can't be sure. Right. Did it, did it arise in a soup, or did it come on a meteorite? Uh you know, carbon carbon stuff comes on meteorites. Mm-hmm. If you got life somewhere and a, and a huge meteorite blasts a whole bunch of stuff out of that planet, uh, some of the life's going to survive. It's going to get carried somewhere. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Musgrave, I got some uh, uh, emails with with a couple of questions that I wanted to to pass along to you, and it's fitting of of talking about the uh, the the power of life. What do you think about um, you know recently in the last you know couple of years? Uh, there's been a lot of talk about going to Mars and and having humans live on Mars or or looking uh, at other planets that could sustain. Uh, human life. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think? Do you believe that humans are meant to go and inhabit other planets? Uh, they are certainly. Uh, they they are explorers and they are curious. You do have to look at the motivations. The mm. people that say, "Well, we need to go there because we're going to ruin this place." Mm. That is right. not a motivation. Yeah, no, that, that's <laughs> awful. Yeah, that's terrible. Because well, you're going to ruin the next place too. If yeah. right. you got your stuff together before you go. Yeah. And there's other ethical questions which arise. Me, if there's life already there, uh, you have to be unbelievably careful. It's when one culture meets another again, mm-hmm. when one culture meets another. Mm-hmm. So if life is already there, you have to come in a gentle way, such as not to bring any diseases, and so not to infect and not to not to disturb the life that's there or don't come at all. So you need right. to be very careful about that. But humans are... Humans are explorers. Now, if there's no life there, you can think about terraforming a place, even Mars. So terraform is to bring the right kind of biology there. I think it's it's ethical to terraform another planet if there's no life, proven to be no life there. Mm. It's still an ethical question, so I might get yeah. an argument. Man. That's very so interesting. So given there's no life there to interfere with, mm-hmm. um, Mars is, is very terraformable. And that is bring the life forms, just dig huge holes in the ground and pack that life in there, throw a bunch of water in there. There's already water on Mars, mm-hmm. there's water everywhere. And I think life is going to arise and it'll form an atmosphere. And life will interact with the geology the same way it did here on Earth and it will, it will form a living place. Mm-hmm. But so all of this, whether it's terraforming or, or, you know, going to Mars with, uh, with robot vehicles, just, or, humans next maybe mm-hmm. uh, so that's a whole series of explorations uh, before i go to the next question um while we're on 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 this topic um what do you make of um stephen hawking's remarks that you know if we were to be visited by some kind of alien race that we should 
you know, be, you know, have our, you know, our defenses up, so to speak, because it could be as catastrophic as, you know, when the Spaniards arrived to the Americans. Well, yeah. I, I feel that... There is a point there. What, ma'am? Oh, no, I, I feel that your, um, your view is more, you know open arms yeah. acceptance and yeah. it i feel that but like putting up the defenses could cause more trouble than good massive trouble massive yeah trouble. i mean it, if if that's the yeah. the image you're portraying mm. to another yeah the day being, the earth stood still right 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 yeah when one culture meets another no yeah uh if they're doing interstellar travel they are unbelievably advanced exactly creatures. yes and we need to behave ourselves. Yeah. We need to understand that they know how to look after us, and that's why they're coming. Mm-hmm. They're coming out of exploration and curiosity. We well, just need to be aware. The question is, they're not going to come here. They won't come here. Mm-hmm. There's better places to come. Mm-hmm. they got the whole universe at their disposal if they're doing travel, and there's no reason to come to planet Earth. Because mm-hmm. planet Earth can't get along with itself. Yeah. The advanced evolutionary creatures here, there are 40 wars today. You only have to read the news. You mm-hmm. only have to look at the news, at the total disasters which are happening. I mean, I could just rattle off a dozen from what I read in the news today. Mm-hmm. And so, if the advanced evolutionary string, I don't call it intelligent yet, that's us. Mm-hmm. Um, if it can't get along with itself, how is it going to accept a stranger? It is yeah. not going to. Yeah. So it hasn't got its act together. It's not ready to do that yet. There's a lot of planets out there that have gotten their act together, and they've got a sustainable behavior with Earth, and they get along with each other and all the other creatures. And are much more they've inviting. <laughs> yes, it is that balance and that peacefulness between their own species and between all the other species, and they arrive at a sustainable balance and they keep it that way. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so that is the kind of place now, but that's a serious, you know, it's one way to look at what we do here. Mm-hmm. Now, if they look at this little planet out there and they see that there are 30,000 nuclear bombs, on this tiny little planet out there, that is not a place you want to visit. Oh, wow. Because they are going to go unstable, Mm -hmm. and they're going to try to use that stuff, and they'll take themselves out in the process. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's that's a fact, not 30,000 nuclear bombs. Now, you know, I'm not privy to know whether it's 20,000 or 40,000, but that doesn't matter. Right. There's enough to melt the whole place. Of course. Yeah. And so that alone... That alone tells you the species not got its act together. Yeah. No, I've always I've so. always tried to, you know, a bit of a mind experience to um, envisage what it's like as um, an outside species looking in yeah. at humans, and I I would be disgusted, you know, looking at humans, yeah. and that there is nothing beneficial for anyone coming over, you know, that's, to visit. That's that's the sad fact of it. Yeah. And anyone that thinks otherwise just needs to read the news today. Mm-hmm. And so we just got to get it together if it's possible. But the tribalism, the nationalism, you know, the tribalism mm-hmm. and, and all the rest of that, and people unwilling to um, establish, you know, civilizations. Yeah. They're too, they're too interested in destroying a civilization. It's more important to them to exercise their own way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Musgrave, uh, the other question that I have here, uh, it might be a bit of a loaded question, but uh, one of the listeners wants to know, does NASA, have like a, <laughs> does NASA have a protocol in the event of an encounter with extraterrestrial life? <clears throat> I don't believe, uh, I don't believe that they do, but NASA are pretty advanced creatures mm-hmm. all in all. And so uh, I don't believe they do, but I do believe that NASA would do the right kinds of things. Right. Because, you know, NASA is an, and I've been, you know, the only astronaut to be there for over 30 years. 
And you do get into, like the panel I'm doing out there on conspiracy and cover-up and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. NASA doesn't do that. There's no part of that. Okay. If there's any conflict of interest, they want to find things mm-hmm. because that would forward the, the exploration of space. If there's any conflict of interest, they want to find stuff. And NASA is authentically pursuing a life in the universe. And so... I think NASA would do would do the right kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Now they've they've gone part way there in terms of when we went to the moon. Even though we really thought the moon was a sterile place, we went through the exercise of assuming there might be some some biological materials that uh, human species not been exposed to, mm-hmm. so it could be very very infective. And so they did quarantine the astronauts coming back from the moon. Right. And they exposed lunar material to all kinds of plants and animals to be sure nothing harmful there. We we thought that was purely an exercise, but it was the right thing to do. They're ready to do that already from coming back to Mars. So that's a that's a little step in the thinking about what you do when one culture meets another. And of course, we had the disastrous effects of the Europeans bringing uh, unknown diseases to other right. parts of the world. Again, it gets into the care you have to take when one culture meets another. I'm not sure NASA got a plan or not, but uh, uh, they are in a lot of ways. They've kind of lost a vision, and they've lost the ability to really project manage stuff. But still at heart, uh, they have the right spirit of exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about what you were just saying and in terms of you know the possibility of bringing in foreign diseases or so, um, how likely do you think it is? Because I do remember listening to one of your um, talks and kind of exploring the idea that life may not just be completely different, but have a completely uh, different chemical structure. So, you know, on Earth, um, an organic compound is defined by um, its carbon, um content but um you you were talking about you know the possibility of maybe a silicon based life form or you know something that we can't even envisage so i guess there's a possibility that diseases or so won't you know the likelihood of us receiving a disease that is transferable may not be as high i don't know if they're a completely different um, life form yeah Maybe I've changed a little bit. Uh, I guess I'm kind of stuck on the way carbon hooks to itself. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, but maybe maybe I need to be more open-minded. Maybe I've moved since that last discussion. Mm-hmm. I think life as we know it will be totally recognizable. Okay. <clears throat> at the microscopic and at the biochemical, the test tube level. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the carbon world. Okay. So the way carbon hooks to carbon. Mm-hmm. However, so I, I view that as generative. As a, as a cosmic imperative. In other words, that's the way we're going to find it within our own universes. Mm-hmm. There are other universes out there, and I also think that. And they may have a different atomic table. Yeah. You see, another another universe can have a different atomic table, and maybe they don't even have carbon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. atomic table. But I think within our own universe, I see no evidence, but maybe I'm very narrow. Maybe we just haven't been far enough. I think the atomic table we know will maybe will be across our entire universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is the life will be pretty much defined by the carbon. But I do not think that DNA and RNA is a cosmic imperative. I think that's only here. Yeah. It's a very magical way to do reproduction. But you can also envision endless ways to do chemical reproduction. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In the creation of new life, the DNA and RNA. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, a, there's probably a myriad of ways to do reproduction mm-hmm. and, and genetic, you know, genetic coding and all. Uh, so I, I do not believe that DNA, I think DNA and RNA is probably an Earth-based thing or maybe it came from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But the carbon aspect and the carbon I, I do. My feeling is... My feeling is that life will be carbon-based out there, so it will be recognized. Okay. But I do think that infective-wise, of course, we will have stuff that they will not have seen, just like when we have 
a new virus come on the scene here. It has a field day until we catch up with it. Yeah, sure. Dr. Musgrave, um, you were talking about the moon a few minutes ago. There was, uh, you know, it's been said that nowadays we have more technology on our on our cell phones than you know Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong had on their on their lunar uh, uh, module. Uh, there there were six missions that that landed men on the moon. Why haven't we been back since? Uh, uh, this tends to be an argument that a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, UFO alien believers always bring up. Um, can you tell me, you as an astronaut who's, you know, done six spacewalks, why is it that, you know, we we set our sights on Mars and, and you know, we never really went back to the moon after those six uh, space missions? I think it's vision, Frank. I think it's just vision. It's the long-term vision, which we don't have and really have not had. It's the long-term vision for space flight for exploration. I don't think you need to go back to the moon. Mm -hmm. The moon is a very practical place. Mm -hmm. It's very practical. It's got materials. It's got energy. It's uh, it's very low gravity, and you can launch out of there, you know, without uh, without worrying about the air. And um, it's a uh, it's a nice place to have uh, do astronomy. It's a very practical place, but for the given resources you have, when you want to go beyond Earth orbit, do you? Uh, I don't think you necessarily need to go to the moon. You can leap off or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not saying we shouldn't. Maybe it's part of the equation. But mm -hmm. I think me, I would, I would leap off. We've been to the moon. Great place to go, but mm -hmm. I'd go further. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, Jennifer Wilcott is in our chat and she's listening live right now. And, um, she's been wondering, do you think humans, I mean, you know, I guess at any time in history, may have visited other civilizations in on other planets the the other i guess the flip the question round do you think we have ever huh. visited anyone else and it's kind of been hidden huh i don't know <laughs> i i don't know mm -hmm. i'd have to be thinking about how you lose history mm -hmm. and how what happens what kind of catastrophe were you where you lose history, so yeah. it would be so significant. I, I just can't say. So I don't know. I don't know how you lose history. Okay, and uh, I guess we think we know the history of humanity. We think we almost know the evolution, you know, from other, from other, you know, human-like beings. We mm -hmm. think we got the evolution down. Yeah, and we think we have human history down. But, you know, so uh, have we been elsewhere already? I don't know how you lose the history. Yeah. That's a fun question. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks to Jennifer Wilka for that question. Um, and, you know, again, uh, let us know how we're, we're doing on time um, because there is, we have a... It's a, okay. Keep going. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> we'll, we'll go all day long. <laughs> so I didn't know the quality. I wasn't oh. sure of the quality. As soon as our quality drops, just, yeah, just, just tell us and we'll, yeah, we'll wrap it up. Um, but I wanted but to... I want to get your two emails, so you got to... Send me your email. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, no question. We'll we'll, we'll send you that. Um, we'll send you that after the show. We can keep keep this up. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm 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 really. Um, it's very humbling to know that you're enjoying uh, uh, your time with us here. Um, but I wanted to ask you now with the uh, you know the, the all the space shuttles have been retired. Um, what do you see as the future of, uh, of of space travel? Where where do we head next? We we got to get the vision. <clears throat> we need to get a vision for long term space flight. So you're asking me where do we go next? I don't know where we go. We don't have any vision mm. <clears throat> right now. There is no future. But but wow. what do so, you do? What do you feel should be people's vision? I guess, or, or what would be yours? <laughs> Well, um, I think space station was a huge strategic error okay. in terms of long-term vision. Oh, wow. Uh, for the cost of space station, yeah. we could have had 300 Voyager-class satellites. So, a waste of time, we essentially. Could have, we could have covered the entire solar system. 
The wow. Voyagers have been out there for 35 years. They're totally functional. They're just great. They visited four different planets. They have, we consider now that they have left the solar system, the first human satellites to leave the solar system. They're just, wow, though they're extraordinary satellites. We could have had 300 of them. Wow. For the cost of space station. So today, every human on Earth could have 300 channels, however you want to do it, mm -hmm. 300 multimedia channels, and you select which one you want. We would have had them from every single planet, every moon of every planet. We would have had return samples. So we would have had return samples from every one of the planets. That is the cost of space station. Wow. Wow. So it's not just the trading off whatever the price is in considering the shuttle launches to get there. I mean, it's the cost $200 billion, but No, the cost is we could have had 300 of the highest class satellites covering the entire solar system. We would know the thing today, and you would have multimedia experiences from every planet and every moon of every planet. That's what space station cost us. That's what the lack of, of the vision to go further yeah. out, the lack of vision to get out of Earth orbit because we've been there already. Mm -hmm. But that is, see, that is exploration. Yeah. That's reaching out. That's going places. So what would I have done? I would have done that. Von Braun would have done that. I knew him incredibly well. See, that, that was a visionary. That was someone who was a visionary. That was a science fiction guy. Mm -hmm. And that was a guy who had the charisma and the presence to communicate. And, and you, he also had the technical, huh? Sorry. Um, do you feel that, oh. um, I use the word mistakes, but um, loosely, do you think that the mistakes that humans make and the miscalculations in in terms of, you know, the, distrib the distribution of their finances comes down to, I guess... Uh, the selfishness of humans and their need for, you know, control, etc., etc., to the extent where exploration and knowledge isn't at the top of their priority priority list anymore. I think it is. <clears throat> I don't think that's the problem. You have to feed them something. Uh -huh. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope is not just there for science. It was the people's machine before it got launched. Mm -hmm. It was the people's machine, and the people loved that machine. Mm -hmm. And they don't love it for the science. The yeah. science is very important. Yeah. But they, they love it for its exploration. They love it for it's not powerful enough yet. But the bridge of the gap between the human and the science, between cosmology and theology, between philosophy and astronomy. Mm -hmm. It's a machine which tends to give us the same way humans always look to the heavens. It tends to shed some light on what is the meaning of the hope and who are we? Mm -hmm. The meaning of the hope of our little lives here. But when you start touching humans in that kind of way, uh, then, then they want you to go forward. Mm -hmm. But I have found, I have found that uh, the humans as a whole are unbelievably forgiving, forgiving of our foibles and our mistakes mm -hmm. in the space program. And as soon as you feed them anything, uh, the enthusiasm is just waiting. The appetite is waiting. Yeah. The public is not the problem. The Washington, the lack of image, that's the lack of vision. That's the problem. Yeah. The lack of vision to tap into an appetite that's already there. But what do you think the source of that, I guess, um, yeah, the, the what's the source of NASA, the lack of vision? NASA needs to do the vision, or they need to create a visionary, visionary uh, groups of people. What do we do next? NASA today does not create the visions that they don't think it is their job to. NASA today simply salutes the administration and salutes the Congress. Okay. If this is where the money comes from, we're going to do what they ask us to do. Mm. So do you feel that, that... That results in jobs programs. Do you feel that it, the aim and the goal of NASA has changed over time and they've kind of lost, they've lost the vision, but it was there in the first place? It was there in the first place. Kennedy said to go, which was a nut, that was a nutty thing to do mm -hmm. without infrastructure technology, but he, he also hit the right date. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he did it, but he hit the perfect date. We were able to get there within the decade. Mm -hmm. And so, but you know, that was, wow, just plain go. 
just go. Well, we had gold people, but we had incredible visionaries like the Von Brauns. But you see, we were, it was difficult to say we're doing spaceflight for international competition. That is the wrong reason for doing spaceflight. Absolutely. Spaceflight for its own sake and for exploration and discovery. But to say we're doing it to compete with other people, we should have joined them, not competed with them. We should have gone together. Now, I think Kennedy, if he lived long enough, I think he might have done that. But when you come out of the 60s saying the reason for spaceflight is to compete, you've won the ball game. It's time to go home. Mm-hmm. So it's a difficult vision at the point. You have to convert the international competition to the vision of exploration. Yeah. And so in the early 70s, we started to lose our ability to create visions. And and that's why I feel it, it's... It's human selfishness and no. and the, the the power thirst that holds them back, right? No. Yes. They 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 wanna they wanna look good amongst themselves, but but, but they still they do like exploration. Yeah. I think if you give them, deep down, yeah, you give the public something. If you give them a great vision, they're, they're going to tell you to go forward with it. Mm-hmm. If before space station, I create a vision. But 300 class, you know, Voyager class satellites covering the whole solar system. And if I created multimedia simulations of what you're going to see at all these different destinations, we'd have gotten a goal to do mm-hmm. that. And it turns out we spent that much money on space station anyway. Yeah. That's. And we're going to keep it going, I guess, to 2025 now. Right. Because yeah. I guess the jobs program. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's that's a lot of money <laughs> that could have been redirected. Yeah, that's crazy to think. It could have been, but that's that's exploration. That's to get out of Earth orbit. Uh, Doctor uh, Musgrave, uh, I know that you're going to be giving a lecture at Contact in the Desert, um, and, and if I'm reading correctly, the title is "Farm Kid to Rocket Man: One Little Step at a Time." Um, yeah. I know that that you're quite engaged in in motivational speaking and and and, and doing these these kind of talks. Um, can you give us a, a bit of a preview of what you will be covering in in, in this lecture? Yeah, it's how you get from, uh, it is spaceflight, <clears throat> of course, but it's how you get from farm kid to, to rocket man. Uh, so it's one little step. It's learning all the mechanics of the farm. It's learning uh, the Marine Corps in the military way. And mm-hmm. it's learning how to be an airplane mechanic. And the military way, it's education and mathematics. That's a nest. It's driving tanks in the Marine Corps Active Reserve. Tank mechanic, too. Then it's getting into computers. Okay, I'm in the computers, but how's the brain work? Okay, it's a nervous system, medical school. And it just goes from there. But I'm going to show people they can go where they want. Mm-hmm. I can show people that what you deal with, the the magic of multiple domains and, and the, synth- the synthesis between different disciplines, the magic of what you can do with that. But the main thing is, is you just keep going forward. And you never forget the past. You never forget the skills that you acquired mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. I'm a palm farmer. I've raised 10,000 palms in the last few years. Well, how could you do that? I'm a farm kid. I know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so you connect the dots to your past always. That's part of the skill set. It's part of what you got to offer to the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's very inspirational. People can see, well, I can do what I want to do. Just keep going. And that's, uh, that's how one thing leads to another. It's the ratchet wrench. I'm, I'm a heavy construction equipment mechanic at the age of 16. So I show a picture of this hand on a ratchet wrench. For, Forty years later, that same hand is going to be up in the air fixing Hubble. Wow. <laughs> That's how life works. That's how life works. Wow. That is yeah. fascinating. Um, and j- just from your experience, you know, doing these kind of talks, and, and I imagine, you know, people, you know, come up to you afterwards. And what What do you see as the, one of the biggest things that hold people back from moving forward. Uh, well, I guess it's uh, I guess confidence is part of it. Energy is the other part of it. I can't tell you where the energy comes from, but you need the energy. But you need the energy. Yeah, you need the energy to keep going forward. But it gets down to exploration too, because you're going to miss on some of those adventures. But it's adventuresome. It's who's going to climb the next mountain. Yeah. So. Wow. Where that comes from, I can give you a trite answer. It's nature and nurture. It's the genetics your folks gave you and the environment you're raised in that produced you 
But that's a trite. It's not even an answer. It's just plain old trite. But it's adventure. See, it's the it's the, it's the excitement of the adventure. The next mountain I'm going to climb tomorrow. Yeah. Where do I go tomorrow? And so you look at given who you are today, the opportunities going to come your way. What doors could open for you tomorrow? That's a you know an opportunity. And what are the mm-hmm. meaningful challenges within the opportunity? And so you take the challenge on. Sometimes you meet it, and sometimes you don't. It's okay. You still learn something. Even though you missed, even though you lost, heck, you still it's still part of your skill set you go forward with. Yeah. You need the and curiosity so, and the drive. And this is the first time I've ever said this, so you all stimulated me to uh to get thinking about this. But <laughs> I think it's uh I think it's adventure. Yeah. Wow. I think it's just saying, Okay, it's today what 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 mountain am I gonna climb? Yeah. What adventure am I gonna take on today? Or do I not want to be adventuresome? It gets down to adventure. It gets down to the journey, you see. You keep the journey rocking. You know, it's funny because I hear you talk, and it's almost like we are talking to that three-year-old that was alone in the woods that <laughs> night. You, It sounds like you've never lost that spirit. I've, n- I've never lost the spirit, and I've never changed. Uh, you see, what, you, what you're asking for that I couldn't answer is where the kid get it from. Yeah. <laughs> But it, it sounds like this... Um, Kierkegaardian, that that leap of faith, but you're taking it every day throughout your life. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's fun. It's it, also fun. Life is fun. Yeah, but it, it's crazy. I mean, you're saying this so so casually, and you know, for people, a lot of people, it's it's difficult. I mean, how would you tell them to? How would you convince them to live like you but live? It, <clears throat> But, of course, our message is that it's not difficult. You can enlist in the service if you wish. Mm-hmm. You can you can be a heavy equipment mechanic if you wish. Mm-hmm. And so be. you can drive tanks with the active reserve if you wish. Or if you don't drive tanks, you drive trucks. Mm-hmm. And you can raise plants. You can have a garden in the backyard. Uh, you can do these things. So what I'm showing is these are very little simple steps I took. Okay, I went to college. That's fine. You can go to college, too. Or you don't need to go to college. You can do a craftsman-type high school education, and that will propel you forward. What is the next one you, what is the next one you're going to take on? And then you, dev- then you develop a total skill set that's, that's many domains, and now you become unstoppable. But I think, I think you asked the right question way back is, is, What motivates you to do that? And I think it's the excitement for the journey and the adventure. Did you find life fun? That you, you want to climb the next mountain. Mm-hmm. You want to go to the beach, you know. Yeah. I think it's that, that, that adventure. I think that's where it lies. And from what we've seen, you seem to be an amazing artist oh, yeah. on top of everything else. Uh, yeah, you just keep going. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to... Um, post this on Twitter now so people can actually see the picture. Um, your, your very well-known piece of art with the earth in the center. Yeah, that's the arising of complexity. Uh-huh. But that, that, picture, that picture embodies everything we've spoken of. Uh-huh. So the supernova event off to the left is creating those big molecules, then DNA, RNA strands. I just pieced that together from the whole discussion that we've had, the arising of complexity, the carbon world and the silicon world. Mm-hmm. And the way on Mother Earth this complexity is arising, and that's exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Now, I did that. I did that piece in response to Intel asking me to come to them and tell them what the future of the world was. Oh, wow. It's... So that's what I... Yeah. No, I was just going to say it's an it's an amazing uh, uh, work of art. Um, and yeah, we were we were looking at it and we we're totally mesmerized by uh, by it. Um, is this something that people can go see at a museum? I mean, it should be at a museum if it's not already. Or is this well, just... I just send it out for free. I just send them on a high res file. Oh, <laughs> go get a high res file and print it out. huh? That'd be great. Yeah, no, we can do that. <laughs> Because it, it, I mean, it really is fascinating, and there is, you know, so much uh, in 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 this portrait that, or in this painting that, that um, it really, you know, it, it gets your your mind going. And I know we were watching uh, one of the lectures in which you explained 
uh, a bit of, of this painting. And uh, I'm just wondering from a, from a painter's standpoint, how long did it took you to, to make this? I mean, it's a very intricate uh, piece of art. Well, I know. I had some graphic designers help me, too. So the idea, all the total concept, mm -hmm. the silicon wall of Carmel, but I had some graphic designers help me to format together into computer art. Mm -hmm. So that's not an oil painting. That's computer oh, okay. art. Yeah. It looks amazing. It, it really does. And it definitely uh -huh. has that visionary the, aspect Yeah, the it. critical thing is, is it also is portraying the same things happen on, on the other planets. And I do believe mm. that that evolution produces an increase in complexity. And I also believe in all the other planets out there, the silicon world is there. So I almost believe that's a cosmic imperative where every planet out there, you have complexity arising in biology, and it is also working the silicon world to increase the complexity the way silicon can too. So the other planets I have out there, the message is also saying those planets is happening there too. Mm -hmm. Wow. But no. if you want a book, Tyre de Chardin, uh, The Phenomenon of Man, um, he also, he talks about the arising of complexity. Of course, complexity is a science in itself these days. The, phenom the phenomenon of... Uh, man, the phenomenon of man. Of man. Okay. So I have question. some books which are, you know, are key to my philosophy, and so that's one of them. All of Stapleton's Star Maker is another yeah, I think we saw a lecture in which you mentioned uh, Star Maker, and it sounds yeah, like a really fascinating Thomas, book. Yes, Thomas Berry's Dream of the Earth is another critical one. The sustainable Earth as a planet. Yeah, so those three are kind of, they play together nicely. Well, I think... Uh, we're I'm, I'm a real plagiarizer. I'm a terrible <laughs> plagiarizer. Except on college exams, I don't plagiarize them. Yeah, well, but a I'm, plagiarizer... It listens and learns. A plagiarizer listens to other people. Very true. And they true. learn from other people, and they metabolize that stuff, and other people become who they are. Mm. If you really soak up other people, it becomes who you are. And so, okay, you're plagiarizing them, and that's the way it should be. Wow. So so uh, imitation truly is the most sincerest it's form important. of flattery. It's very, very important. Wow. You just soak, you soak up other people's magic. Well, I, I know some people who say, you know, they don't they don't plagiarize; they they borrow ideas. Same thing. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you know, plagiarizes so many negative connotations right. attached to it. it I does. mean, I use it for humor. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's that's the only way of listening, and you've got to use other other ideas to develop. Your own. I, 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 now I don't feel bad. I'll, I'll just say I uh, plagiarized, <laughs> you know, my eighth grade math test. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Musgrave, I, I want to thank you so much for being so, yeah. so generous with your time. We really, uh, it's well, quite it humbling for us to good. have you here. It was an incredibly fun uh, sojourn. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really it, glad that it you was, enjoyed it. Yeah, we had a great time. Um. And uh, as so we, now, if you're going to send me, you have my email. You can so we can stay in touch. Yes, absolutely. We're going to do that as soon as we we wrap up. Uh, but I wanted to let people know that if they're going to be in California in May, towards the end of May, definitely go check out Contact in the Desert, which is happening from May 29th through May 31st. Um, uh, Dr. Musgrave is going to be there. He's going to be giving a, a really fascinating lecture and a and workshop. This is the kind. Stuff. This is the kind of stuff we'll be talking about. Yeah, so I... It's going to be super fun. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a blast. Uh, Dr. Musgrave, thank you. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? You have uh, your website, correct? Uh, well, LinkedIn is one way to find me. Okay. Um, it's a pretty good way because it's got on my profile there. I do have a website, storymusgrave.com. Very and cool. You all are in L.A. You're in L.A., right? Correct. Well, stay in touch because uh, you can come to some of my lectures at Art Center College for Design. Oh, oh wow. Thank you so great. much. We will yeah. definitely take you up on that. We would love to be there. I'm doing a commencement address this spring there, too. Very cool. Well, you can that's... you can count us as, as being in, in attendance that day. Oh, that's really exciting. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Musgrave, and okay. we'll send you that information. Uh, we'll send you our sure emails. Stay in touch now. I don't want to lose you. No, no. definitely not. Okay. <laughs> okay, Dr. Thank Musgrave. Thank you so much. Good night. Have good a great night. night. Good night, Frank. Bye-bye. Wow. What a nice guy. I mean, if, if you know, doing six spacewalks and accomplishing more than I will ever no, do in my life wasn't enough, he's a nice guy. <laughs> I know, right? He's allowed to be like horrible, but oh, no, yeah. he's still no, nice. No, he's 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 a great, smart, intelligent, forward-thinking visionary. No, but he's one of those few people. I need to rewrite his bio with. <laughs> he's one of those few people who's academic and artistic, but on top of that, like he does everything, mm-hmm. and he he'll do manual labor, he'll yeah. do academic style labor, he'll everything. It's it, honestly the I, most um, rounded it has person been I've ever met. One of the uh, most humbling interviews I've had the pleasure of doing ever. And you know, like I am a big fan of uh, the analytical style of seeing things and rationalizing things. And he was like point on the way I'd like to think. You know, like. If I reach my pinnacle, that's exactly how I would like yeah. to be and that have that sort of open mind. And everything he said, there was never a, a real bias nope. in anything and in any statement he made. And he was always careful with his words. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, Honestly, I'm, I'm quite speechless. I'm glad we have a break between <laughs> our show and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, a, a little under two hours. Because um, yeah, no, it, it was it was great, and and I I want to thank him. Uh, uh, my most sincere thanks to uh, Doctor uh, Story Musgrave for this. Uh, we're gonna go out with uh, uh, somewhat of a of a fitting song here as we watch um, the takeoff of STS eighty, uh, which was one of the uh, missions that uh, Doctor Musgrave was on, and uh, and we're gonna go out with a very uh, appropriate song, if you will. But uh, we want to thank everybody that tuned in. We're going to be posting this ASAP on our website. And mm-hmm. uh, we want to thank Susan for uh, sending uh, Dr. Musgrave um, our way. Uh, again, catch him at the Contact in the Desert conference. Go to contactinthedesert.com. Get your tickets. Get out there. It's going to be a blast. And enjoy this one. I'm Frank. Genevieve is here. Thanks again to Dr. Musgrave. And, uh, we're gonna, in two hours, yeah. less than two hours. We got another jam-packed show coming up. So uh, enjoy this one. Bye-bye. See you later. Independent FM. New York. London. Philadelphia. Japan. Chicago. Paris. San Francisco. Tijuana. Los Angeles, California. The Independent FM. Indie Radio. Live from Swing House Studios in Hollywood. This is the all-new Independent FM.